This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones and with me as he is every single show, but a little bit different now, is my now married co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, welcome. This is the first show that we are recording after your big wedding. Chris, that's true. Uh, it does feel a little bit different. In fact, uh, we got to hurry up because I've got things to do with the wife. You got to, you know, take care of her and stuff now, you know, so. Uh, you got to put up a shelf. Yeah, exactly. I need to put up a shelf and fix that's the a, car. Uh, and It's an old Three's Company reference <laughs> for a few people out there might get what I'm talking about. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a little something, something. Anyway, uh, but no, it was fantastic. We had a great time. Uh, got to see friends and family that, that came up for the wedding and just a really enjoyable. Uh, in fact, it, it rained the beginning of the, the morning there for the wedding. And then luckily the rain stopped just long enough for the rest of the day for us to be able to go outside and get some amazing pictures. So Yeah, the photos were amazing. Had a fantastic time, so really appreciate uh, just uh, every, all the listeners letting me have a little time off to, to do that, and it does feel good to be back behind the microphone with you, though, Chris. You know, I haven't been recording that much the past couple of weeks myself because of everything that's been going on uh, with my family and various things going on, uh, and it does feel a little bit weird to be back behind the microphone, doesn't it? But we're here, and we're going to talk about books and comics today. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is, of course, judge a book by its cover. Book cover judging, and that's what we're going to do today. A little a little gospel, a little R&B action for everyone there. So, Well, Matthew, after our last show, it's all about the hair. About the hair, <laughs> about the hair. Uh, listener Jean Brianna Russell in the Babel Conference said... I enjoyed the new Judge a Book by its cover song. So you've got some fans out there. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's, you know, I don't know why I even thought of it, but it is it is fun. What's great is that we actually have a, a cool cover. Uh, Christopher L. Bennett is bringing out a e-novella for his Department of Temporal Investigation series, which, mm-hmm. Chris, we both have enjoyed that series. I think it's it's one of the more fun series that have been done in Star Trek. And, and and when I first heard of it, I thought, really, we're going to have a story about Agents Luxley and Dolmer, those just really dull characters from that episode that are only there for like, you know, 
to be punchlines, basically. Yeah. And then Christopher but I thought it, it would be fun. Yeah, and then he turned it into this fantastic storyline. So the the cover that we got for his newest one called The Collectors really does look fantastic. Um, it, it, it has this whole... I don't know, timey-wimey look to it. I'm I'm really excited with this strange well, clock and fire coming up through it. It made and... me feel like it's some sort of, you know, ancient secret organization. You've got to be a member of this. You've got to be the Grand Pumbaa. Yes, I, I don't yeah. Know, but it, but it, it has that feeling, you know, like there's some some secret history here that none of us know about. It it does have that feeling, yeah. Man, I'm I'm surprised. Goodness, Chris, I wish I had had thought of that as well. But you're right; it does have a secret organization feel to it. I, I love that we're going to be back with these characters as they're um, on the search for something new. They're bringing home an alien obelisk, apparently of incredible power. When they are challenged by a 31st century temporal agent who insists that they surrender the mysterious artifact. To her uh so this just looks great i, I can't well, wait you know, to jump into this sometimes the online audio which of course we don't actually use on the show but that's how we talk to each other here recording it's a little bit choppy at times and i thought for a minute there matthew that you said not an obelisk but an alien novelist uh yes an alien novelist <laughs> said that they should drop the artifact for her <laughs> That's they brought a powerful alien novelist back with them <laughs> From the to 31st tell the century. secret history yeah. of Star Trek yeah, that exactly. no one knows. Um, <laughs> what's weird is to them, Star Trek is like their history. Like they, it's it's kind of like the Ken Burns film of of okay, that yeah. that universe. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I'm looking forward to this great title, The Collectors, to go with the cover art here. And it's hard for me to give this one a perfect score in terms of our sufficiently exciting rating, but it's a very beautiful cover. So I guess I'll give it, you know, like an eight. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we have an exciting scale, I, I don't know if this is exciting. I would say this is sufficiently intriguing. Okay. There, does that does that work? So, we can add that to the list. It's sufficiently it works, intriguing, Matthew. But now I've got to go down to the stamp shop, and I've got to have another stamp made. <laughs> our stamp of sufficient intrigue. Yeah, what what that sounds like? Goodness, what does the stamp of sufficiently well, it, intriguing sound it like? Would be Is it a like very a question un- mark? Like sound? Well, it's a very unusual sound. You're not quite sure what it is. Hmm. Thus, it's very intriguing to you. Hmm. Well, we have. A blurb for atonement coming up from our friend Kirsten Beyer. A little bit about what we can expect in the next installment in the Voyager series. Well, Chris, unfortunately, this isn't coming out till next September, but we do have an idea of what's going to be happening in the book. Admiral Janeway is going to be facing that tribunal she turned herself into, and they're determined, apparently, to execute her for those supposed crimes committed during. Voyager's maiden trek through the Delta Quadrant, and Captain Chakotay knows that the Canara and several species that are now allied with the full circle fleet are not what they appear to be as well, and so the first confederacy of worlds, the first quadrant, a pack he cannot trust is his only hope for unraveling this mystery and the true agenda that the Canara have 
and rescuing, obviously, Admiral Janeway, all at the same time. Meanwhile, back in the Alpha Quadrant, Seven and Tom Paris are forced to betray the trust of their superiors in a desperate bid to reveal the lengths to which the fellow officer has gone in the name of protecting the Federation from the legendary Kalar. So she has so many things just kind of up in the air right now with this book, and I can't wait to read it. And we have to wait till September, Chris. <laughs> It'll be here before you know it. So that's yeah, well, true. Yeah, this, I know many, many Voyager fans are really looking forward to this book. I think that maybe you and Char, our co-host from To The Journey, have to get together and just kind of console each other for, you know, the time here. It's going to be okay. Uh, let's just read the other books. Uh, let's talk about Janeway. Uh, let's, well, we're going to do Pathways again as well. So That's true. That's true. So we'll get an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the, the Voyager crew. And, and fortunately, Chris, I don't really think there are any more Voyager comics. You know, it's it's sad to know there isn't another Avalon Rising out there. <laughs> Maybe we need to do that ourselves. The <laughs> just, follow-up to Avalon Rising. Just just reread it to cleanse the palate so you yeah. don't want any more Voyager until you know Kirsten's writing it. <laughs> And if anyone wants to know what that's about, especially if you're new to this show, go all the way back. I want to say it's Literary Treks 17. The title of the show is Tuvok's Remedial School for Badasses. And uh, Tristan, who is Char's co-host on To The Journey, is with us. And we talk about some Voyager comics. And I still think it may be one of the most fun shows we've done. Right, Matthew? Chris, even the title makes me just want to laugh for a while <laughs> because we, I, I felt so bad for Tristan because we invited him on. We were excited. We we're going to do some Voyager comics. And then it was Avalon Rising and the rest. Uh, and we got yeah, a great title out something. of the show. So that was good was too. something else. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me if this makes you laugh, Matthew. Just before we hit record here, we came across some news that... The next New Vision comic from John Byrne is going to be called Resistance, and it will feature the Borg, and the TOS Enterprise is in the Delta Quadrant. Well, apparently Byrne is going to be taking TOS's liberal approach to distances and really take that to heart. Uh, so the fact that they're in the Delta Quadrant isn't that big of a deal because... Right, you know, like, you know, sometimes they're at the galactic barrier oh, and yeah. then sometimes they're in the center of the galaxy, right? Exactly. And, you know, uh, one week to the next, it's 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 like a... It takes about a week, Chris. I mean, it's not that far. Sure. It's, yeah, everything's nearby. Uh, yeah, I don't know, Chris. Um, at least this is going to be original, which we enjoy when John Byrne gets original. But, um, you know, Enterprise had to work really hard when it had the Borg on to try and fit in with canon. Yeah, I don't know I how they this did it is, well, personally. Yeah, I don't know how this is going to happen. Um Obviously, didn't realize this, but this isn't actually going to be the first time that Kirk's encountered the Borg. They encountered them the first time in a Star Trek manga book. And so... I like how you say that manga there. Or manga. Is it manga? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm well, not... it's manga in Japanese. Yeah. Okay, I'm not I'm not Japanese. I apologize. <laughs> uh, more Japanese whiskey, Chris, and maybe I'll get it right. Okay. So, uh, they have apparently... A little southern twang. Yeah. Manga. I got our manga. Um, 
And then it just sounds like I'm saying something. <laughs> that mangy thing. Uh, anyway, good <laughs> Lord. This show's off the rails already. I don't know, Chris. What do you think? The Borg with TOS? I, what, do you, what do you do with that? I don't know. I mean, I don't have a problem with it in comics, but I don't know how you're going to work that out because on Enterprise, they were able to pick up from First Contact and there was a loop there that made sense. And they never actually call them the Borg in the episode. And their ship doesn't look like a Borg cube that we're familiar with. And so there are some ways that you can sort of explain away that story later on as to why Starfleet doesn't know anything about the Borg when Picard encounters them. So so that worked okay for me. Now when you start throwing in the 23rd century here, I don't know. I think you have to be really careful about how you do it if you care about making it fit in to the Star Trek timeline. Now, if you don't really care about that and you just want to tell kind of an interesting story, then I guess that would work as well. I I think that has to be the way that you're going to go with this. Um, If you're going to kind of skirt the issue and you don't call them the Borg or anything like that, it really just feels like a redo of what they did in Enterprise. So Exactly. So I'm hoping that that's not the case. And, you know, we have. We have really enjoyed John Byrne's comic when he's been original and given us some great fun stories that do feel like those ex- those other episodes that we just missed in the five-year yeah. mission. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I will say, I'll... though, that I part of the problem with it is that it's been established that the Borg, if they know you exist, then they come after you, right? So if Kirk's Enterprise is going to encounter the Borg... And they're going to know then that Earth exists. Doesn't really make any sense how it would fit into the timeline. That's true. And it makes me wonder, you know, obviously the Enterprise is much less advanced than even, say, like Voyager or the Enterprise D. So uh, do the Borg at this point look different? Do they look more like Satan's robot kind of at this point of the timeline? or? Well, it could be. And actually, remember that the Borg that we saw on Enterprise and Regeneration, those were Borg that were frozen in the ice after first contact. So they actually came from the 24th century and they were thawed out and then they were in the 22nd century. So it is possible that we would see Borg that were a bit different. And that would be kind of fun to actually see what a 23rd century Borg looks like compared to a 24th century Borg because you would think that they would actually look different so well it could uh, be like you know maybe they have bell bottoms kind of like the the 23rd century starfleet uniforms have the the bell bottoms on them Mm -hmm. and the 24th century don't so that's something yeah or all the borg have like really long hair at that point you know it's their hippie (laughs) phase that's right (laughs) their hippie phase i think their eyepieces are much larger you know they haven't refined the technology yet that or they just have really hairy chests with medallions you know like uh like you know bones bones yeah from the motion picture so (laughs) i'm picturing (laughs) you board this ship and there are all these drones coming at you, and they all have really hairy chests, medallions, <laughs> giant eyepieces, long hair, and bell-bottom pants. This is awesome. <laughs> Why are we not doing this, Chris? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ooh, that okay. would be fantastic. That's got to be a t-shirt. 
That's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> That's a t-shirt we, right there. Hey, we need uh, we need Isaac to make that t-shirt yes. for Trek FM. Definitely. Uh, th- this must be done. <laughs> 23rd century Borg party. <laughs> oh, the hippie Borg. <laughs> Okay, why don't we move on from this? (laughs) We have one thing to do here before we bring our friend David Mackian to talk about Section 31 Disavowed. We're going to go through the latest issue of the Q Gambit comic, which I guess is fitting since we're talking about doing something very unusual with TOS and the Borg here. This is something unusual with Abramsverse and DS9. And we're now into the fourth part of this, Matthew. So... You told me before the show that Keiko O'Brien is really kick-ass in this universe. What else do you think about this comic? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny. I, I do. I feel like Keiko O'Brien is just an awesome character. She really does uh, some cool things at the end of this comic. So I really, en- I, I really enjoy this series, Chris, just the way that the writers are kind of mixing all of those story elements from Deep Space Nine and kind of weaving them together with this uh, Abrams verse and creating this whole strange, you know, confluence of events. I'm just really enjoying because they're they're I can see all the great allusions to Deep Space Nine as a series that they're yeah. just enjoying being able to use. And and this was a shocker, Chris. I had no idea that they would bring in this idea of the paw wraiths and the the prophets here at all. Well, I find that interesting because in both of these timelines, you've got Gol Dukat, or as they call him in this comic, Commander Dukat, seeking out, in a way, the paw wraiths, I guess. I mean, it's not exactly what he's doing here. And spoiler alert, as everyone who listens to the show knows, we will go through some of the points here in this comic, but we won't get into too much detail. But when we do see him releasing the prophet, there's one prophet remaining alive, apparently, at this point. It's the last living prophet. A prophet and a paw wraith. The way it's drawn, it's almost like, it feels like when he becomes possessed by the paw wraiths on the series, right? Although the implication in the storytelling here is that he's simply trying to destroy them both to finally destroy the old universe and usher in this new universe. But it did seem a little bit like maybe he has a similar motive to what he had on the series, which is that he's going to harness their power somehow so that he can be the leader of this new universe. Definitely. Um, I, I think that this is one of those things where they are really playing with, and in some of the ways, like the mirror universe, that they're playing with all of these things and twisting things just a little bit, but at the same time, some of the characters kind of have some of the same motivations, and so... Right, yeah. Um, one of the things, Chris, that I really have to praise about this comic as well has been the likenesses of the characters. Just yeah. spot on. I mean... I kind of wish Kira had had this hairdo in the series. Man, she is, yeah, Kira's you like looking. It. You like the I Kira do. Croft Tomb Raider I really do. Hairdo. Mm-hmm. I, Kira Croft Tomb Raider is, I want that action figure. I, I still want somebody to get me that action figure. I agree. The likenesses are quite good. I, I Sometimes this particular art style, like I don't like the heavy shadows. I, I think that the faces... The shadows on the faces are too heavy for my taste. 
but the likenesses of the characters are absolutely spot on. I agree. Well, and what's what's neat about this story? So we had the founders show up. You know, Kirk and Cisco and Odo and Ahura and Scotty are all together there at. They're on Earth, which has obviously been taken over. Mm-hmm. We know from yeah, the last a issue by the Klingons pyramid in the middle of San Francisco. Exactly, and then you've got the founders who have showed up. They've killed Worf, who was the regent, and they're declaring that they've won the war. All they have to do now, basically, is destroy Kronos. To which I thought Kirk uh, was was really funny. He's like, uh, "Do they not know Klingons? Like, this is not <laughs> like just going to be an easy thing. It's not like they just roll over and die." <laughs> Did you um, notice that Worf's blood all over the floor is purple, like yes, in the undiscovered country? Yes, it was. Again, I really do feel like the 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 writers of the comic here they are they've just got it spot on with those things. You know that they're not letting those little things slide by, which I really like. Um, yeah. It's I I, but, I appreciate. Have that. you always taken it as Klingons have purple blood? Because I never. I don't think that's a thing. Like in my head canon, that's not a thing. They have red blood and there's just that one case where in order to keep the rating for the film, um, they made it Pepto-Bismol. I guess in my in my head canon and because of the film, it was always that they had pink, you know, Pepto-Bismol blood the same way. that's your favorite film. Though, your well, favorite exactly. Film. Um, and, and it, you know, it just made sense because Vulcans have green blood. So the fact yeah. that all of the blood of the species in the galaxy wouldn't just be red, wouldn't be the same. Well, do you think that actually Klingon blood wine is purple and that's why Worf likes prune juice so much? I don't know. That's a good question. Hmm. Um, I kind of, I kind of hope not that it doesn't actually look like their blood because the idea of like choking down Pepto-Bismol is just disgusting. <laughs> All right, so that's what's happening here anyway. They, they're the changelings. We saw that at the end of the story uh, last time, and it really just picks up right away. You know, we've got uh, Quark being Quark here. Yeah, uh, I thought that that was really funny too. Uh, just the way that they play, you know, Quark and uh, his interaction with Bones is just fantastic. He talks about. Yeah, his mother Quirk does, and he Bones is like sounds like a charming woman, and Quirk's like Ferengi, and he says Gesundheit. Gesundheit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just fantastic! Oh, that was really funny. Well, and then the the cool thing this is where the the big action starts as the founders are all talking about how they've won. Basically, there's a huge explosion in the building. The Ceiling comes down, and everybody dives out of the way except for the founders, who all die, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're saved by Miles O'Brien, which was really great. He shows up in, in I guess, the Chafee, in the little small Defiant mm-hmm. shuttlecraft, which is just mm-hmm. excellent. He throws out a rope bridge, which was awesome. Like Of all the things, he actually throws out a rope bridge to him to well, save him. The contrast, rope bridge or rope ladder, I guess we should say, and photon grenades. Exactly. Now, photon grenades, very high-tech. Rope ladder, very low-tech. Are photon grenades a thing? 
Apparently in this universe, they are. Um, I guess so. And I guess you know, quantum grenades would be yeah, even more powerful, right? I guess. The, and they seem to do the job. They brought down the whole ceiling. So uh, it turns out that who is in command of the Defiant? Keiko O'Brien. Like, yeah, which we uh, saw at the end of the yeah. last issue, right? That she was in the but, captain's chair. But seriously, of all people, and, and she turns out to be a real, really cool character, I think. This was what was interesting, though. You've seen Quirk throughout this, and he seemed to be kind of this benevolent guy, very much more like our Quirk in, in, in our universe, and even nicer, actually. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that he sells he sells Kira out to the Cardassians. Right. And so actually, he's maybe just an even more skilled businessman in this universe, in his yeah, timeline, than definitely. he is in, in the Prime one, because... He doesn't let any sort of personal attachments or emotions mm-hmm. or ethics get in his way. Yeah, and then they get brought back to Terok Nor, where they meet up with Dukat, and he takes the 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 stone tablet and breaks it, and uh, the the prophet and the Pa mm-hmm. Wraith both come out. What's really interesting here is that there's there's this little caveat though, where Kirk is pulled away by Q. And it almost just feels like they feel like they need to have Q in right. the yeah, comic yeah, yeah. just to remind mm-hmm. you because he doesn't really do anything. I, I don't I don't know. What did you think, See, Chris? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I agree. T- to be honest with you, at this point, I kind of forgot about the whole Q part in the first place <laughs> as I started reading this one because I did not go back and read the other three before reading this one before the show. And since it's been a while since I read part three, I'm just reading the story as somehow the Abrams versus TOS guys are over here with the DS9 guys and this whole thing's going on where the, the changelings have killed Worf and we're picking up from there. And I didn't even think about the Q part. And then, yeah, suddenly, and when I saw Kirk start disappearing when he's talking to Cisco, I wasn't thinking, oh, Q is pulling him away. I was thinking like the Cardassians are beaming him over or something. And then I turned the page and I remember, oh yeah, Q. So I'm with you. It's like there's no real reason for him to be there. I think it is the case that the feeling is that Q has to make an appearance in each issue. Otherwise, it's not the Q gambit. And I guess that's the problem with releasing these a month apart and taking six months to tell this one story that you could really just put into one book and release it at once. And if you just did it as one long story, there would be no need for Q to be in this part of the story at all. Well, and the only thing that does remind you is that Q is trying to teach Kirk the lesson of the no-win scenario. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, why? you know, yeah. why is he so obsessed with this? And, and maybe it's because he just feels like Kirk never faces the no-win scenario, really. And he wants to Kirk to actually face it. But I'm but just again, hoping why? that... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> why do because you he's, care, Q? Because yeah, he's Q and he's got billions <laughs> and billions do. and billions of years on his hand with nothing to do. So, um, but I, I was just thinking, would it be great, you know, Kirk can like uh, talk a computer to death or a robot to death or, you know, beat any scenario. It would just be awesome to have him actually beat Q at his own game with with the whole no win scenario thing. I just I and maybe that's where they're going. I don't know. But 
I'm kind of hoping that that's what happens. So what would happen? Would Q just kind of poof and vanish? <laughs> yeah, he'd just he'd just storm off. You know, like huff off and be. I'm gonna go play with Picard. Uh, you know <laughs> okay so q wouldn't actually completely disappear he would just leave kirk alone yeah exactly um now chris i, I do have to mention before we oh, got to what if i have one more idea if, if that didn't work q's new thing would be to prove to Chekhov that not everything was invented in russia Ooh, that's a tough one too i don't know if he's gonna i feel like he's created his own no-win scenario <laughs> <laughs> Before we kind of get to the talk about what we think of uh, rating-wise for this one, did you notice on the front cover uh, that Odo is sporting a really nice members-only jacket? Oh, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it just reminded me of the 80s. <laughs> it, it does look a lot like that, yeah. It's fantastic. Um, it's too bad it doesn't have a little alligator on it. It could be an oh, Izod. Oh, man, it would be. Jacket, yeah. yeah. Either either one, just it was really funny that that look like there. A Photoshop just like, project. For oh goodness. Um, well, Chris, uh, what would what would you rate this one? Um, it, as uh, you know, we kind of talked through it. it. Seemed like we both kind of enjoyed it. I don't I don't know what would you rate it. I you know this issue in isolation probably just I don't know like seven unnecessary appearances of a Q. Oh. I, I think, I mean, it's an interesting story, but it's very much in the middle of the story at this point. So, you know, as a standalone, it does a good job of continuing the story. I think it does a good job of taking elements from DS9 and just putting a different twist on them in a way where it doesn't necessarily feel like, oh, okay, they're just plucking this out because it's part of DS9. It actually feels like, in another history, maybe this is how things could have gone. Yeah, I, I agree with you with that. You know, reading this series has, has been really interesting, and it is one of those things where I kind of feel like once it's done, I need to go back and read it all together in, in just one sitting so I can get everything that they're trying to do all at one time. Oh, definitely. I was even thinking, like, maybe we eventually, when all six parts are out, do an actual feature where we yeah. talk about the whole story instead of talking about it yeah. piecemeal <laughs> once a month like we're doing right now. Um, but I, I liked that this issue because it just it did some things that I wasn't expecting. I, I really didn't expect, you know, the, the Paw Wraith prophet thing to show up. Um, I thought that that was kind of fun for them to bring in to this universe and kind of see how uh, the JJ verse characters kind of deal with that. And again, for me, the, I really, really love the artwork in this series. I think it's been fantastic. The look of the characters, the just the, the look of the whole thing has been really, really well done. In fact, I've, I just feel like it fits that kind of Deep Space Nine darker feel. So, it, you know, when you read it, it feels JJ-verse, but it also feels Deep Space Nine-ish. And okay. that's, well, that might to explain me, that's, the shadows that I feel yeah, a little bit too yeah, heavy on the faces. Um, well, and, you know, I watched through Deep Space Nine, the lighting of that show always had a lot of shadows to it. Um, sure. It, just the way that the greats were over the lighting and everything, too. So, on a whole, I'd give this uh, probably seven and a half Keiko O'Brien ass kickings. <laughs> What's the half one? Is that where she yeah, starts she in one really last time whole, and you, yeah, she you doesn't get really her to put stop. her, you know, her whole weight behind it. So, 
I see. All right. Yeah. I noticed you've you've been going to a lot of halves in your ratings lately. So. Well, uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I should stop that. But uh, I think you had like know. a half a clone in one of them. I don't know yeah, how that works. Yeah, that's a weird one right there. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's everything we have in news today. So let's head on over and talk to David. Chris, I'm really excited because we have David Mack back with us to talk about his brand new book, Disavowed. Now, I just got to apologize to the folks. We would have talked to David earlier, but I got married. Uh, and David was nice yeah, enough. little thing, yeah. Damn you! Yeah, exactly. To not make <laughs> me come back early from the honeymoon. Uh, but I'm so excited to be able to talk to you, David. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Welcome, David. This is an exciting thing. One of the things I didn't realize about this book, and I was reading up on it, is that you helped kind of design the cover art with Tim. Tell me just about how that came about. Well, it, that might be a bit of an overstatement. What happened was <laughs> when uh, the book was in an early stage of development, I had some ideas for what I thought we might do with the cover. I didn't want to just replicate the formula that had been used on previous Section 31 novels, right. which were black and white faces, mostly against black background, mm -hmm. half in, half out of shadow. I wanted to try and stay true to that idea, but also move it in a new direction. And I wanted something that looked more like a mainstream thriller. Right. So yeah. what I put together as a comp, just as an example, I, I put together like a rough image of like, you know, an L cars, you know, Star Trek computer interface with information about Bashir and maybe his face and some type around it just to say, you know, we could do this kind of an approach. And then I had another one where I pulled a movie still of Alexander Siddig from a different role, but in kind of an action oriented pose. And then I composited some of the elements that you see in the final cover, like the use of the uh, star charts background from Jeffrey Mandel's star charts. Mm -hmm. I suggested maybe pulling those in and ghosting them behind another uh, image or, or behind some other key art just to try and evoke that sense of astro-political intrigue and star-hopping adventure, that sort of thing. I call it Space 24. Sure, sure. That's a good. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a good comparison, and it's this apt image of because him really it, reminds me of his when he was on Twenty Four. For all I know, that's where it came from. Oh, could be. Um, I mean, I don't know where they licensed the uh, likeness from for Tim to work from. It may very well have come from Twenty Four. For all mm. I know, it works really well, though. It's a really great cover. Well, it's apropos also on that. You know, over the summer, I wrote a Twenty Four novel. So right. there you are, which will be coming out next September. I've just been told. Oh, nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, that'll be 24 Rogue. That's coming out from Tor Forge. Anyway, we're off topic. As far <laughs> as the cover art uh, for Disavowed went, I put together just a few of these comps just to show the editors. This is where my head is at, to show the editor and the art director. They took this, and they eventually hired Tim Bradstreet, a really terrific artist, and said, here are some of the starting points. Go with this. And he worked uh, some you know, different ideas, but he kept some of the elements I had suggested and he found new and more interesting ways to composite them. And part of what happened uh, with the cover, long story short, is that there was an early version that I really loved that we couldn't go with because Tim had used a piece of likeness reference art for Bashir, for Alexander Siddig. 
and he thought that the license or the rights for that image would be secured by the publisher. The publisher thought that the artist had secured the rights because he was using it in his comp. Everybody okay. thought somebody else had done it. Nobody had. And as a result, it was only several months after I thought we had already locked down the cover. I found out we hadn't locked down the cover and they had to go back and get a different piece of art and do it again. And I, I love this cover. This is one of my all time favorite covers that I've ever had on one of my books. I really wish you guys could have seen the key art we had before. Me too. If you think this is intense, uh-huh. this, this is like maybe eight on the scale of one to 10. The other one was 10. This is maybe oh, wow. eight. We had the most amazing image. Sadly, we couldn't get the rights to it. And the art director at Simon and Schuster spent months chasing after the rights holder offering money, pleading for them. You know, they, they offered money. They were willing to pay to get mm-hmm. the rights. The copyright holder is under no obligation to grant those rights or make a deal, and they chose not to. It was owned by a competing media company oh. that had no interest in helping out Simon & Schuster. Mm. And sadly, a deal could not be made, and for legal reasons, a different likeness to which proper rights were held had to be secured and that's just the way it goes so it would be overstatement to say that i worked with tim bradstreet i put together a few early comps and suggested a tone and a style uh and i drafted like you know that little bit of text that you see about bashir like i I just assembled that from you know the encyclopedia and i suggested compositing that text next to his image so that a casual reader let's say who maybe has only seen DS9 a few times but is vaguely interested, picks this up and they look at the cover and they go, wow, what a cool cover. And they see the text, they go, oh, that's the Dr. Bashir character. Okay, I understand. And they can tell by looking at the cover, oh, this must be like a techno spy thriller type thing in the Star Trek universe. Mm -hmm. And it must feature this guy, Dr. Julian Subatoy Bashir. And, you know, it's basically cramming a lot of information in a very visual way into the cover that will also help readers understand the product they're buying. Well, and I think, you know, Chris and I do a segment on the show we call Judge a Book by Its Cover, and we, we talk about the new covers as they get released. And one of the things and that Matthew I, sings about them, David. I, I do sing about the covers. Yes, <laughs> I, I have a theme song. But it, it's funny because, you know, from working at Barnes & Noble for quite a few years, I realized just how important covers are to books. You know, we say don't judge a book by its cover, but a bad cover can turn people off to a great book a lot of times. And I found some of my favorite books that I still enjoy uh, in a series, they had great covers. And I picked it up because I, I liked the cover. I read the insert. It sounded great. I read the story, enjoyed the writing, and I still read those books today. And so you you can get a lot from a you know a cover and so something this exciting uh, you know has that you know, 24 type feel and everything you're going to get a lot of people picking this up even though it says star trek on it you know and i think that's that says a lot for what art can do um for you know the art of writing um you, you put great art with it, it it just it's awesome um it, it would be like having bad uh, artwork inside a comic book you know it kind of turns you off Um, exactly so yeah i think this is that's really neat and and i love that we're seeing that kind of resurgence in the in the covers and the books with you guys with seekers and now with here with disavowed 
a lot of love and care is going into the, the Star Trek line, and uh, you can tell that everybody involved is 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 still excited about writing these books, and mm-hmm. that excites me. Obviously, one doing this show, and two being somebody who just loves reading them. So I really well, appreciate David and that. everyone have been rattling off this series of New York Times bestsellers, Matthew. So they have to, you know, I mean that's injected a lot of energy into the line. Definitely, definitely. Well. David, uh, talk to me just a, talk to us a little bit about uh, crafting this story because there's a lot of threads that you've pulled together from previous works, uh, as well as the, just kind of the current era of Trek books. Talk to me how you pulled this story together for Bashir. This story came about primarily because I was approached by Simon and Schuster at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, and they wanted me to sign on for a four book contract. And I said, well, I'm willing to do a two-book contract. And they said, well, we'd really prefer you did four. And what we agreed on was I would do two books for Star Trek Seekers. And then I would do two books for Star Trek Section 31. And the reason I settled on Section 31 for two books was I had just come off of uh, writing my entry in the miniseries The Fall which was uh, the book, A Ceremony of Losses. And I knew that that, how that story was going to resolve with Bashir drummed out of the service, court-martialed, disgraced his career in ruins, you know, stuffed into a Starfleet intelligence black site, you know, unnumbered prison in the middle of an asteroid somewhere. And I knew that this was a perfect jumping off point where when he's had his whole life burned down and taken away, that's exactly the moment section 31 would come back for him. And it was a goal toward which I have been working for some time and for which I had laid groundwork in a ceremony of losses. So the thought was we will come back to that story that has been brewing now for many years, which was touched upon first in the TV series in a number of episodes, particularly in the last season, and which was touched upon in the books in the Section 31 novel Abyss by David Weddle and Jeff Lang. And I thought, okay, it's time to get back to this. He's had this long, simmering uh, spy fascination, which I've explored in the books, which I explored in Zero Sum Game, and which came back in A Ceremony of Losses. And then I started getting into the story thinking, okay, well, I need a reason to bring section 31 back to the fore because I hadn't used them actually since my uh, novels that came out back in 2004, a time to kill and a time to heal. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't had use for section 31 in, you know, at that point, close to eight years, nine years. So I had to concoct a story that would merit them coming back. And they tend to come to the fore when they feel the Federation has been threatened in an existential way. So I had to concoct what I thought would be a suitably grand threat to the Federation. And for that, I looked to my favorite antagonists, the Breen. And I brought forward a plot line that I've been working on in the Cold Equations trilogy in book two, Silent Weapons, where they went through this massive, elaborate intelligence scheme that crashed and burned all around them. And we found out they were trying to steal a you know the wreckage or you know the secrets of this crashed jaunt ship this wormhole drive starship from the mirror universe that they had discovered crashed on a planet in federation territory 
and they were trying to basically get away with the wreckage to reverse engineer its secrets. Picard and his crew stopped them from doing that in Silent Weapons, but that doesn't mean the Breen are just going to give up. Right. Now that they have reason to suspect that a mirror universe actually exists, that there are other universes that can be accessed, now they're beginning to look into it. So I thought, well, what would be, you know, what could possibly be worse than the Breen getting their hands on wormhole propulsion technology that lets them go anywhere and strike without warning, project force anywhere they want without warning? You know, I can't think of much worse than the Breen getting their hands on stuff like this. Like, forget about trying to steal slipstream drive like they did in Zero Sum Game. Mm -hmm. This is them leapfrogging over the Federation to the next level of the game. Yeah, this is end game. You got it. This is we take galactic control, you know, in a very short period of time if, if they get their hands on this. So that's the kind of thing when Section 31 sees those pieces beginning to move on the board, they say, OK, this has to be brought to an end. This has to be disrupted right now and at all costs. And, well, okay, so if you're going to infiltrate the Breen and you're going up against the Breen, who do you want? You want someone who's dealt with them before, who's infiltrated them before, who has unique skills, and who also, since you're going to have to go to the Mirror Universe, you want someone who knows about the Mirror Universe. Who fits that description? That would be Dr. Julian Bashir, who was one of the first 24th century characters to return to the mirror universe since the original series mirror mm -hmm. mirror episode. It was him and Kira Norris who went through via the wormhole. So Bashir hasn't been back. And that was the other thing I found when I was looking into the story was although most of the other deep space nine characters through the, throughout the DS nine books, the post finale books have at some point had reason to venture across the universe barrier into the mirror universe, Bashir has not. Bashir is the one of the few who didn't go over, who hasn't returned to the mirror universe. Cisco went over multiple times. Kira went over more than once. The Ferengi went. Bashir never went back. And I thought, okay, there's some potential to be mined here. And then I started looking at the pieces that I had put in motion as I began looking to pull all this together. And I looked at my last foray into the mirror universe which was the novel Rise Like Lions, which is the uh, culmination of the Terran uh, rebellion into the Terran revolution and the rise of the Galactic Commonwealth, which is sort of their analog to the Federation, but a little different. And I looked at where I left it, and one of the sort of coda notes I put onto that novel was a hint of the coming uh, clash between the Galactic Commonwealth and the mirror universe version of the Dominion. I teased that by showing Tyranitar and a founder and Eris. And here it is. It's now years later. And the Dominion is prepared to move forward with uh, making contact with the Galactic Commonwealth. So I realized, okay, so there's a great possibility there. And I started asking myself all these questions. You know, what happens when you put mirror Dominion into this equation? And at some point while working on the story, I thought, all right, and how do they react to Bashir? And then I remembered what happened the last time Bashir was in this universe and how his escape was affected. And I said, oh, that's good. That's the kind of thing the Dominion would hold a grudge over. And it's never been resolved. And it was never spoken of again. As far as I know, Bashir in the regular prime universe 
has never told our Odo that he blew up his counterpart <laughs> in yeah, the very universe. That's right. something you really mentioned to him. Well, oh, you know, it's an way. awkward conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like saying, oh, hi, Lita. Did I mention that in the other universe I saw you sucking face with Ezri? I, I just thought you'd want to know. Yeah. Why? Uh, no reason. Uh, forget I brought it up. Oh, by the way, Odo, I blew you up. Did I mention that I blew? Well, not you, but. Yeah, you Forget know that it. your counterpart is kind of like you, and I felt like it once or twice in my life that I might want to, but yeah. But hey, let's not go there. That's awkward. <laughs> so, what happened was is that you know, as I started asking these questions and pulling all these disparate threads together, you know, once the mirror universe was in play as a factor and as a setting, I had to go back and look at the work I had done in the mirror universe. I had to look at all the stories and work I had done involving the Breen. I had to look at the long arc that I had been working on for some time with Bashir going back to zero sum game in 2010. And then even beyond that to work other authors had done with him during the relaunch books and during the previous section 31 books. And when I looked at it all together, I said, I really see a long arc forming here. I, I see, you know, that this is a story that has been building organically over time toward something like this where the pieces are going to start coming back together the all these disparate threads all these you know arcs that have separated are going to start reconverging and that's going to have you know catastrophic effects all around especially when i take like a super organization like memory omega which i've established in the mirror universe and let them go head to head with section 31 these are both remarkably shadowy mysterious and highly equipped and capable organizations and they have both shown themselves in the past to be utterly ruthless bastards what happens when you have two groups of highly trained highly competent highly technologically advanced ruthless bastards go head to head i thought well i've got to find out because that's just too much fun not to do definitely <laughs> And then, you know, I bring back into the mix Serena Douglas, which I know some fans have mixed reactions to, but she continues to be one of my favorites. And I love her relationship with Bashir and whatnot. So th that was how all those threads came together. It was just an organic process mm. of asking questions, asking myself what would constitute a viable threat. And then once I had found something, simply going back and saying, okay, what have I previously established? What's the next logical step forward in that narrative? Do you end up having to do a lot of rereading or, or do you just have things kind of outlined so you have a quick summary so you don't have to go back and say read, you know, seven, eight, ten books in, in a series to, to really remember, you know, the, the character points that were hit, especially with a character like Bashir? Well, if it's one of my books, I tend to have the outlines because I keep all my old documents. I don't throw anything away. So if I need to refresh my memory of what was the plot line or the storyline to this, I can often go and quickly find it in an outline. And then that'll give me an idea where to look uh, in a manuscript, let's say, or I can just call up old manuscripts and do search in Word and, and find relevant chapters and flag things. I also have a lot of old PDF files of Star Trek books. Um, so there was a certain amount of research. And occasionally, as I would research things and go rewatch things, I had to pull up, for instance, the episode crossover from uh, Deep Space Nine, I think season two or season three. And I had to sit there and watch 
you know, entire sections of it again. I had to watch sections of it over and over and parse every line and look at every frame and figure out who was exactly where and who would see what. So I had to know precisely what was going on so that every detail in my book would track with the details that were established in canon. Because I don't, you know, I, I hate that moment when a fan goes, oh, that's not actually what they said in that episode. In this right. episode, yeah. I don't like to have that conversation, so I tend to do my homework. Mm-hmm. But I did have to review uh, a lot of my own books. I did reread sections of my Mirror Universe novel. I did uh, reread sections of Jeff Lang and David Weddle's Section 31 novel, uh, Abyss. So I did reread parts of that. I still had A Ceremony of Losses pretty fresh in my memory, as well as Cold Equations, because I had written them recently within the last couple of years. So I, I did have those pretty uh, much in the forefront of my mind. So there was some homework. There was some research. There was some rewatching of classic episodes. Um, and then there was some stuff that I just felt pretty confident going forward with. And then it was just a matter of outlining it dotting the I's and crossing the T's at the outline stage during my research, and then just double-checking things on a scene-by-scene basis as I wrote the manuscript. With uh, dealing with the the very beginning of the book, you kind of definitely, I think, just just take that whole court-martial and pardon, and you deal with that really quickly. Um, was that just for you just saving page space for other things, or... Um, what, what made you Partly. just kind of deal with that quickly? Well, part of it is that it's already been dramatized to a certain degree in other books. It was covered in the fourth and fifth books of the fall miniseries. Uh, the Poison Chalice by James Swallow dealt with the Andorians taking action to emancipate Julian Bashir from the black site and to get him amnesty on Andor. And the fifth book, Peaceable Kingdoms by Dayton Ward, dealt with the rise of the Andorian candidate to the presidency and the fact that she was imminently probably going to pardon Bashir and that Bashir was living on Andor at that point. So with that sort of already having been dispensed with and the fact that we already knew that and had been read into evidence, I didn't see any reason to expend time rehashing what we already knew when I felt it was faster and more elegant to simply wrap it into uh, a quick sequence where, you know, someone wants to follow up with him. Uh, I make it this reporter who was previously established in some of Keith R.A. DeCandido's novels, uh, such as The Singular Destiny, uh, Time for War, Time for Peace, those those books, uh, Articles of the Federation. So I bring back Ozil Granov, the reporter, who wants to do an interview with this rather high profile figure of Julian Bashir, uh, who is now, you know, got, you know, has children being named after him on, uh, and, or he's kind of a celebrity at this point. And he also has a degree of infamy among, let's say the purists who didn't want their genome altered, even though it turned out to be necessary. He's got some people who hate him, some people who love him, but like it or not, he's a celebrity and he has a certain amount of infamy within Starfleet and within certain sectors of the Federation, particularly political sectors. So there's all this sort of backstory, but I didn't want to spend six or seven chapters on it because that would be very slow going. Right. And I felt right. since we've already got other books that have already told that story, 
I can very quickly in the space of a scene, I can tell you he got court-martialed in absentia, got convicted, got his conviction overturned by order of the president with a pardon. Um, you know, he's living in exile on Andor because it's the only place that will issue him a medical license because he got his, you know, even though his discharge from Starfleet got changed from dishonorable to honorable because of political pressure, Starfleet Medical won't give him back his license. And he's still persona non grata in Starfleet, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody knows that he is secretly still working for Starfleet Intelligence, except for a very limited number of handlers on a need-to-know basis. Hence the title, Disavowed. Because he has been court-martialed and essentially drummed out of not just Starfleet, but out of Federation life for the most part, he has been disavowed publicly. He is on the outs. Because he has now lost all of this, it's like the old saying, it is only when you have lost everything that you are free to do anything. Mm -hmm, Thank you, Fight Club. Uh, And that's where Bashir is. He's had his Fight Club moment. He has lost everything except for Serena. And now he is free to do anything. Well, and and two, I mean, you're writing a, a spy novel here with Bashir. And so expediency of getting to you know the heart of the matter and the in in the action of the story uh really fits that kind of genre that you're working in i i liked it i I thought it worked well and and um made made sense because it it happens in that conversation and then you can put that aside and just get to the 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 heart of the matter with with what bashir is going to be facing with the rest of the 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 storyline and gives you more time to build yeah it was about serving narrative momentum well, for you with uh, working in the mirror universe, what were some of the inspirations for the tech that we see there? I mean, we've got all sorts of amazing, crazy tech. I mean, the, the way that they can monitor other universes, alternate universes was awesome. Well, I'll just admit that that uh, was inspired by the TV series Fringe. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever watch Fringe? Yes, I did. That makes sense. It's, uh, that, okay, it's, it's, it. Walter, it's Walter Bishop's uh quantum window yeah that's awesome that's what it is fringe was a very big inspiration and what i i had been thinking this for some time but i had not previously shown it in a mirror universe uh novel was that they had this sort of universe peaking you know this scrying window if you will uh into other uh parallel universes and they've been using it to steal technology for well over a century now which is where they got just about everything they have and that's why Memory Omega is so formidable. They're simply the best thieves out there, and they work very hard to suppress other people from using their method because they're ruthless. Yeah, and it was it was scary too because uh, you know as as much as you end up kind of liking a little bit Savic and people in Memory Alpha, you're you're still not quite sure exactly what they're doing with all of this. You know, it's. Talk about the the scariness of the ultimate big brother. They can just peer into anywhere at any time they want. And <laughs> so, well, I mean, to a certain extent, that's true of our world today, yeah, or at least the uh, or at least the industrialized first world. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very true. Um, well, with the mirror universe, we were just talking a little bit before we started recording. You could get a writer in there, I think, who can't restrain himself and just kind of goes crazy. So, one, how do you decide who to use in the mirror universe and then how much to change them? Obviously, you can't use who's dead. Uh, there's right. And you've got to have a list of that. But how do you 
bring in people that we kind of know and then how do you figure out exactly, okay, how far do I go to change this? Because it's the mirror universe, but it, you know, how does that work for you? For me, the key is knowing that just because it's the mirror universe doesn't mean that one should feel like you can do anything. It's not a, a license to just go hog wild and do any crazy dumb thing you can think of. And the show to the contrary, you know, regardless of how it was depicted in later episodes of Deep Space Nine, I don't think that the mirror universe necessarily had to be treated like a joke, nor does everybody in it have to be a mustache twirling villain uh, or, you know, some sort of perverse caricature of themselves. When I came to start writing mirror universe stories with the Sorrows of Empire back around 2006, 2007, I wanted to take a more serious approach to it, not as a universe that is an inverted evil version of ours, but simply one that, because of critical junctures in its history, took different directions and wound up, you know, handing victory and power to societal models that favor the strong over the weak, that rewarded cruelty over virtue. But in the end, I think what was telling for me was in the episode Mirror Mirror, the original series episode, Kirk makes a strong logical case to Mirror Spock that this approach is not tenable. And this is something that I chose to explore and take seriously in The Sorrows of Empire, when from Spock's point of view, he's able to you know explain this to somebody else, that an empire that needs to expend an ever greater quotient of its own strength directed inward just to maintain itself from internal threats lacks the resources, the strength and the focus to properly project force and authority outward. In other words, if you cannot rule through the consent of the governed, if you're constantly fighting to keep your own people down enslaved and oppressed, then that's going to take up some of your valuable strength, valuable time, resources, and you're not going to be able to project strength outward as efficiently as a government that is in existence by mutual consent. A government of people under mutual consent can direct all of their energy and resources outward. And ultimately, that's going to make them a stronger society and a stronger foe. And Spock realized that. He saw the logic in it. So once I started taking this more real politic-minded approach to the mirror universe, I realized it's not just a license to do any crazy thing or cook up yet another bizarre villain. Uh, as much as you know, some of the uh, mirror universe stories, including some of the ones I wrote, uh, one under pseudonym as Sarah Shaw when I wrote Saturn's Children, even though there are wild schemes and lots of betrayal and bloodshed, these were, in my opinion, depictions of the growing pains of a society that had to grow out of all of this. So that by the time we get to rise like lions, the, the central conceit, the central struggle ideologically at the heart of rise like lions is can a government that arises through revolution and violence ever have legitimacy? How do you arrive at a legitimate government when you come from a place of lawlessness? And the eventual conclusion is that because what they were rebelling against was an inherently unjust and illegitimate form of government that legitimizes their effort to overthrow it. Uh, partly first when you see, for instance, Spock 
who even when he sets himself up in sorrows of empire as a consul and tries to reform the Terran empire into the Terran Republic, it's still technically an illegitimate form of government because he's not an elected ruler. He's an appointed ruler. He appointed himself, but in his final valediction, his final words to the future, he says, remember me for what I really was a villain. This is his final message to the future. And what he was saying with that statement is his was not a legitimate rulership. That legitimacy comes from the consent of the governed, which is what the galactic commonwealth represents. It represents the collective, the people taking back control, asserting control over their own fate, their own destiny with the help of memory Omega. And then electing their representatives, creating a representative government by election with parliamentary procedure, with you know strict controls in place, with power answerable to the people and to their representatives. And that was you know one of these conceits. So when, once you realize that the mirror universe is being steered into this more serious, realistic direction, you realize that just because you're in the mirror universe, that's not a license to go hog wild and do anything. <laughs> it's a license to go crazy. You got it. It's a, that's not what it's about. It, much the same way that Fringe treated its parallel universe not as a perverse or evil version of our universe, but mm-hmm. simply one that had made different choices and yeah. had therefore arrived you know, at slightly different outcomes. It wasn't about good or evil or you know reversal of what we expect here. It was simply about there's an infinite level of possibilities. And this is one that for whatever reason, it's quantum signature is close enough to our own that passage between the universes is something that can be affected with 24th century technology. But just because, you know, they're parallel does not mean that they're mirror images. So I think that's where maybe some writers, uh, you know, dealing with the mirror universe concept saw it as maybe uh, a comic book version of the Star Trek universe, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is outlandish enough on its own merit sometimes without <laughs> having to take that extra step into absurdity. Whereas I chose to go a different way, which was to say, what if it's not a more, you know, exaggerated version of our universe? What if it's just a universe where many of the same things went different ways? Now, as far as keeping track of who's alive and who's dead, I admit that got a little difficult at times <laughs> we killed off people wholesale yep <laughs> particularly when we first attacked uh the mirror universe concept with the first two anthology volumes which you know had like three short novels each mm-hmm. we killed off so many people in those stories and then bet- and then when we did the uh anthology of short stories shards and shadows uh we killed off all kinds of more people and there were so many dead and finally i got to write rise like lions and i said well first i gotta figure out who the hell is still alive i'm, <laughs> I'm kind of down to b cast now i'm down yeah, to like have you, have you come back around and say i wish i hadn't killed that guy there are little moments like that but for the most part i'm happy with the cast who survived like i've still got picard i've got kalar as his number one I've got Troy as his security chief. I've got Reg Barclay as his chief engineer. It's not necessarily the faces you'd expect, but in this context, because of the development and the stories they've had up to this point, they work. They make sense. I could have brought back Miles Smiley O'Brien, but I gave him what I thought was an appropriate, graceful 
exit from the life on the stage of politics and adventure at the end of Rise Like Lions. I, I felt he had earned it and I didn't want to take it away from him. But I put Michael Eddington into power as the elected head of state for the Commonwealth. And I'm happy with that choice. And I found him perfectly enjoyable to write. I like Savick as the head of Memory Omega. And she's a character with a long and checkered past of questionable ethical and moral decisions. First on behalf of the Terran Empire, then the Terran Republic. I mean, here she is, you know, she's uh, lecturing the Dominion about ethics or morals. But in fact, she was the one who carried out Spock's order to wipe out the Trill symbionts in uh, uh, the Sorrows of Empire. So she doesn't exactly have a great leg to stand on. But what, it, in fact, from her point of view, she's still trying to atone for that. It was necessary because what happened was in the mirror universe, the Trill symbionts had actually been infested and taken over by the mind control parasites from the episode uh, Conspiracy from the first season TNG episode and which were also seen in the DS nine post finale books. Mm -hmm. Well, in the mirror universe, the parasites got a hold of the symbiont pools. They made it home to trill. They infested the pools, took oh, over goodness. all the annulated yeah. old, and they just, they were taken over. So they had to be eliminated, but it's a little hard to explain that to somebody without giving away the store. Right. So not everybody has to have a goatee. Especially the women is what you're saying. Yeah, and not all the women have to be bisexual. <laughs> right, exactly. <or> <laughs> right. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but the point is, is that very often, you know, in the mirror universe setting, I think the writers, uh, they were always very quick to try and make the women pair off, but nobody seemed all that interested in having the guys do the same thing. I'm like, well, right. that seemed a little one-sided, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? 90s television. That is, yeah, exactly. that is definitely something. 20 that, years ago, we've come a long way. I think if it were, if Star Trek were on TV today, I think it would do it differently. Yeah, definitely. Well, with with the way that you have things set up, it it definitely kind of felt like that the, the board is set now, pieces are moving, and in this book specifically in Disavowed, Bashir is very much a pawn, just kind of being batted around uh, by oh, people. Yeah. and. It's not really until the end of the book he he realizes just how much he's been used and oh, how yeah. much he doesn't know. Talk to us just a little bit about his character growth and just kind of where you see Bashir being after everything that's happened to this guy, especially over the last few years in, in the Star Trek universe. And um, he he's been through a lot. <laughs> In a word, in after this book, he's been humbled. Yes, he yeah. went in. He went into it thinking that he was, let's say, in chess terms, a knight, and he finds out he is in fact a pawn. He went into it thinking that he would be the one with agency, that he would affect change, and then instead he finds out the only reason thirty-one wanted him to go in. Spoiler alert: is he's there to be a distraction. He's there to draw fire, and. It's to his credit that when he realizes how he's drawing fire and why he's drawing fire, rather than try to run from it or deflect it, he eventually chooses to turn into the wave, as they say, and face it head on because he realizes he has a moral obligation to do so. And this is a continuation of his story arc from uh, the fall miniseries from A Ceremony of Losses. A Ceremony of Losses was very much about him realizing that he had led himself astray in the book Zero Sum Game, where he really did have agency and he misused it badly. 
you know, caused a lot of collateral damage, got a lot of uh, people killed, uh, a lot of, you know, green technicians, workers, uh, you know, civilian engineers and, and mechanics and whatever working in the shipyard who died when he basically blew that thing to bits. Well, that's a lot of innocent lives. And he comes out of it, you know, over the course of the next three years, this weighs on his conscience. He realizes he's supposed to be a doctor, not a, a state-sanctioned agent of murder. But that's what he let himself become because it's what Serena told him to become. And in this respect, this is where Serena's motivations get a little murky. She does love him. She is, you know, faithful to him. She is trying to help him infiltrate and destroy Section 31. But she understood what he didn't, which was that in order for his cover to be plausible, in order for 31 to even consider or, you know, e even to momentarily reconsider uh, letting him, you know, get within 100 yards of them, they had to believe he was morally compromised. And the only way she could do that was if she got him to morally compromise himself, which he does in Zero Sum Game. But years later, with this weighing on his conscience in the wake of the assassination of the Federation president, come, you know, a ceremony of losses, he chooses to defy the political order in order to help the Andorian people and resolve that crisis, which, you know, both in real terms and in story terms have been going on for well over a decade. And he, you know, is willing to sacrifice his career and see it all flush down the drain because he feels he has to atone for these grave sins against his own conscience that he uh, had committed years earlier. By the end of a ceremony of losses, he feels that he has done that to some degree. And as he's sitting in a prison cell, he finally feels, as he puts it, free. But now we find him, you know, several months later, he's been, you know, abruptly freed from prison, thanks to intervention by the Andorians. And he doesn't realize it, but there are still elements you know, of his past that he hasn't come to terms with yet. And one of those is the one that slaps him in the face, dead smack in the middle of disavowed. That's my midpoint reversal, as we like to call it in storytelling, is when you find out the reason he's been brought here is not the reason you thought he was brought here. Which I thought was really great to have in the story, because one of the things about Bashir as a character is that he, especially once everybody knew he was genetically engineered, he became okay with being the smartest person in the room. And he always assumes these days that he is and he can outthink him, you know, his way out of anything. Mm, yeah, right. And I liked that you did this thing, where basically the humbling of Bashir, where you brought him really low to help him realize it doesn't matter how smart I am. There are, you know, whole organizations set out, you know, for who want to use me and then basically abuse me or just have me killed, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I really liked seeing that character growth in him because, you know, he comes on the show beginning in Deep Space Nine. He's kind of this arrogant, brash, young pup, and he, he learns a lot <laughs> throughout the show, and he kind of gets a little bit more humble. But then, of course, he gets uh, to let everybody know he's genetically engineered and it's okay. Nobody's, you know, really mad at him. Uh, too much. His dad goes to prison for a while, and and everything's hunky dory again. And he he, I feel like his arrogance grows again. And it was nice to see him finally be humbled in a way that's going to help him grow as a character, and maybe a way we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I mean that's a direction that I've been working 
you know that character toward for some time i mean and again it started back in zero sum game where he had reached a point where you know he was maybe 40 41 years old and he realized that all the people he had served with on ds9 had moved on to other lives other careers they had either moved up in rank taken other billets been promoted uh you know Worf left and became an ambassador and then uh Kira left and became a Vedic. Uh, you know, Cisco is an admiral or something, or, you know, the emissary to the province or, or some crazy stuff like that. Roe is in command of the station. Uh, Quark is now an ambassador from the Ferengi, uh, you know, alliance. So everybody else has moved up, moved on, done something new with their lives, except him. He's sitting in the same job he's been sitting in for 16 years. And that's part of what's driving him at the beginning of Zero Sum Game is this thinking, I'm so genetically enhanced, I'm supposed to be so superior, and instead I've stagnated. I've gone nowhere. I've done nothing. And that's what drives him to seek out, or I should say accept the opportunity that's offered to him to get involved with Starfleet Intelligence, particularly when they are smart enough to lure him back in by using Serena Douglas. So that's part of it is that, you know, he was starting to feel like, you know, he hasn't lived up to his potential. So then he morally compromises himself and then he spends years, you know, sort of uh, agonizing over that to the point where he finally feels the need to seek redemption. He does that. But what he's learning now is that it's not just a one and done type of thing, that it's an ongoing path. You must continue to walk that path. You can't just say you're sorry once, do one good thing and be off the hook forever. You have to continue to be honest with, uh, you know, he has to continue to be honest with himself and he has to continue working to improve himself to atone for things that he's done if he wants to really consider himself worthy of being called a doctor. Because that's really the thing that at his heart is most important to him is, is he worthy of the Hippocratic Oath? Mm. Yeah, I I really it's kind of funny because I, I was reading those scenes in the book where he talks about the fact that he's he's proud to be a doctor and it just kind of reminded me very much of in Doctor Who uh the why the doctor chooses the name the doctor is that he wants to be somebody who helps people that that's his goal and when he doesn't live up to that name he doesn't call himself the doctor he he became the war doctor uh so mm-hmm. yeah I thought that was really interesting and in that in in a lot of ways Bashir kind of became this war doctor for a while and he realizes he's not happy with that that's not who he wants to be that's not who he's called to be he's he wants to be somebody who lives up like you said to that Hippocratic Oath and that's a really I think great story because um, Bashir is definitely somebody who has flights of delusions of grandeur and uh, oh, yeah, look at our man Bashir. <laughs> exactly. You know, that, yeah, that right. sums it up perfectly. He had all these delusions about what the spy life would be like. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then in zero sum game, he goes out there and he finds that it's all moral compromise and bad choices and turning your back on the people who just helped you. And basically, you know, and, and then committing state sanctioned murder. Oh, is really what yeah. it comes down to. And, I mean, part of one of the things that I think a lot of folks who maybe didn't like the zero sum game as much as some of my other books, maybe what they didn't understand is that there was a deliberate choice on my part to write Bashir in many ways as if he was actually the villain and to take the antagonists of the piece, in particular, uh, the Breen engineer who's in charge of the shipbuilding project and cast him as 
just a decent guy trying to do his job caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time who winds up being killed by this fanatical super agent from a superpower that comes into his shipyard. And the whole point of that book was to make the reader uh, by, by, by confronting the reader with this notion that maybe Bashir was actually in the wrong and maybe the brain engineer and his crew didn't really deserve to die. It's my point is that we should question the actions of those who claim to be acting in our name. That we should not just, you know, be so quick to call somebody a hero because they put on a uniform and pulled a trigger. Maybe we need to actually take uh, a, a questioning, critical look at the choices we make, at the actions we sanction, uh, at the orders we allow our leaders to give. That, you know, there's more moral gray area here than we like to let on. For you with the this book series, it's it's got to be fun to write. I know you uh, said you had, had written a 24 novel. And so what are some of the other things that really influenced you with the spy game? You know, uh, what are your favorite series or movies that you kind of relied on? And, and then creating all the tech, that's got to be fun as well. Well, the tech is really just a matter of saying, what do I need to have happen? And what's the coolest uh, most insidious way to get it done at this juncture. As far as influences, I think sharp-eyed readers probably uh, picked out the Jason Bourne references right yeah, away. Because yeah. there's two members of the Section 31 team. One is named after the Jason Bourne character with his real name, David Webb. And the other one is named after the character played by Jeremy Renner in the Bourne legacy film, Ken Kitsum. Yep. So uh, th that, that's my little born legacy references. I think also I was inspired to a certain degree by Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, which is always a great movie. I like the Gary Oldman version. Oh, that's a fan. Yeah, that's a fantastic movie. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, and of course, I did see Spy Game, which I believe has Redford and uh, Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, I had been watching a lot of espionage movies and also movies like Syriana uh, had been on my mm -hmm. radar yeah. for some time. And all of those sorts of different films, I, I think, had sort of infested my head, you know, particularly Section 31 type stuff and TV shows like 24 and then shows like Fringe uh, were definitely part of that equation in terms of the influence. But, uh, yeah, I think the Bourne films were, were definitely high on my list. What was so cool, too, is this idea, I think, as well, seeing Bashir come to the realization that it isn't a game you know we call it the spy game and, and those kind of things and we look mm -hmm. at it as a game if especially if we just watch you know uh, any of the you know bond movies or anything like that but it's not a game it it's yeah. very real and there are very real consequences for if things go wrong and so I I really thought that that was a highlight of the book just showing it, it's important to have a you know a, I think a good spy network, but mm -hmm. what you do with that power and how you use it and, uh, and all of that says a lot for who you are as, is a country or an organization. And so I, I thought that was a great addition to the book, um, to, to see Bashir finally kind of come to that realization of the things that I think Garrick had been trying to tell him for a very long time, you know, oh, yeah. this is not Absolutely. a game. Uh, th this is, this is, the realest real you'll ever know. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to try and find a way to bring Garrick. Oh, that would be the, great. Uh, because now thanks to Una, Una McCormick, he's the head of state in the, uh, 
Cardassian uh, Union now. So uh, it'll be a little bit tricky, but I could, I'm sure I'll think of something. He's too good a character not to bring in. And I kind of think that uh, he would accept uh, communication from Bashir uh, pretty much any time for the the relationship that they have. So uh, yeah, that would be fantastic. One question I had reading the book, how do you decide what Section 31 knows about the universe and what they don't know? Because sometimes they just seem to be so omniscient about everything. And then in this book, they, it or at least it was alluded to the fact that they didn't know about Ashan being, you know, the, a, a, a war criminal. And so how do you kind of decide, make that line in the sand? Okay, if I, I don't remember, I don't remember implying that they didn't know about Ashan. It was, uh, hold on, let me look it up because well, it was. Is that actually in my book? Yeah, it's in the book. Are you sure it's not somebody else's book? No, I was, I, I have it highlighted. Uh, let me try and find it because uh, um, it I'm was. I'm fascinated now because I don't remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've stumped the author. Yes, this has never happened. Well, you got to remember, I, I wrote this well yeah, over a year. I've written, I've written like four okay. books since I wrote this. I mean, I've already written 320,000 more words. Right. Ago. Pros, uh, so, Serena yeah. is talking to Lahan and she says, um, what you page? Know, what page? You uh, it is. Well, I'm at, I have the digital version. So, um, I got it. I'm, I'm looking at it. I see it. Yeah. She says, you know, uh, we didn't know that the sitting president who could have known the sitting, uh, presidential potem oh, would yeah. turn out to be a war criminal <laughs> or, or that his staff would end up in prison. Uh, and so I was just surprised when I read that. I was like, okay. or that an Andorian would win a surprise exactly. victory in the presidential so, election. I was like, okay, so if they don't know these things, how do they know? All the, I, so how do you well, make I think that, that decision? I think, that, <laughs> I, I think that was more Serena shining on Lahan, basically okay. giving Lahan a hard time. It may very well be possible that Section 31 did have some knowledge of Ashan's background, okay. but just didn't consider it relevant. They were like, yeah, so what? Yeah, I mean, he'll probably be a just fine as a chief executive. It's not his past that concerns us. It's what we think he's likely to do going forward. We have no objection. We don't give a damn. The fact that I think really the more the question was, we had no idea he was going to be exposed as a war criminal. It's the exposed that they weren't expecting. Right. <laughs> they may have perfectly well known what he was. They just had no reason to think it was going to get trotted out to the entire Federation. Uh, and then therefore, you know, set in motion a, a sequence of events that would have his whole staff arrested. And then Dorian gets reelected president after the species escape from extinction and Bashir gets pardoned and completely screws up. And there's the funny thing, this, this bit that you've highlighted that we're talking about now, the whole reason this is in the book at all is because my well-meaning collaborators on the fall miniseries, James Swallow and, and Dayton Ward, they meant well by getting Bashir out of prison, but they didn't realize they had utterly screwed me by doing it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point. Are you sure and I, they I, didn't I, realize that? <laughs> they may very well have. Dayton, if Dayton knew what he was doing, I applaud him. This goes back to our long rivalry on Vanguard, uh, where we did stuff like this to each other all the time. <laughs> But what I thought was understood, what I thought the editor on the series understood was that when I put Bashir into the black site prison at the end of a ceremony of losses, my intention was he will stay there until I, as an author, come back to get him. Oh, that was the whole idea. He was supposed to stay there off the grid 
effectively missing from the Star Trek universe for however long it took for me to get back to him well, and then have section 31 be the ones to pull him out of prison and into this new life. Cause I was already thinking to a certain degree about doing a follow-up story involving section 31. And I thought I had expressed this and made this clear to my editor, but then <laughs> my collaborators on the miniseries come along and yeah. what's the first freaking thing they do? They spring him from prison. <laughs> they get him a freaking, you know, pardon, amnesty. They send yeah. him to live on Andor. I'm like, a freaking oh, hero. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, I, I didn't mind that they made him a hero. He could be a hero who vanished. You know, he could be one of those martyrs to the cause that the Andorian people revere, even though he's gone missing. But my intention was not that he was immediately going to get sprung from prison, pardoned, and go live on Andor. And that was something that my collaborators very generously uh, worked out for me, and which I then had to answer for and deal with when I started writing this book, because it does change the equation. Yeah, if Bashir definitely. is at a point where he's lost everything, lost all his allies, nobody knows where he is, and Section 31 can come to him and say, you are effectively vanished. You are a non-person now. The only people who can take you out of here are us. If that was the scenario, that's a situation where he's played his hand perfectly, put himself exactly where he wanted to be, and Section 31 will have done exactly what he wanted them to do, which was come get him. The problem is I can't do that because my co-writers got him out of prison so now he's living a cushy life on andor he's a celebrity he oh has a God. nice house he's been pardoned i'm like well then why the hell would he want to join section 31 why would section 31 believe for a minute that he would actually want to join he's leading a pretty decent life he's eating in nice restaurants he's being interviewed he has his girlfriend with him life is pretty good they're gonna have to actually make a pretty good case that he should come work for them because and that's why that scene exists between Serena and Lahan. She's saying, well, you know, if this had gone, you know, the, the way it was supposed to, if you had gotten to him in the prison before the Andorians sprang him, he'd be ours. But you took too long and they did spring him. And now you have nothing to offer him because you were slow off the mark. <laughs> I think you just underestimated the genetic enhancements of Bashir that from the pages of the book, he worked out a jailbreak deal. He defied me. James. <laughs> That's awesome. That's Damn so you, Bashir! <laughs> Last thing that I wanted to touch on here that I thought was really cool because each of your books, David, you really do try to work in kind of a main theme or, or themes throughout them. So, And I always really like that. And one of the things that really stuck out to me with a theme in this book is kind of the way that we see the mere universe dominions way of doing things section 31 the federation on our side all of these people have something that they they will fight for and they'll die for the a belief system mm -hmm. and you had a great conversation between the founder in the mere universe dominion and savic and the the founder says that you know principles betrayed are worthless and mm -hmm. it really just struck me this idea of, okay, what are those things that we are unwilling to compromise on, you know, and, and what are we willing mm -hmm. to, to stake our life on? And I, it was interesting because Bashir is kind of, I felt like dealing with this as well. What are those things that he believes in he's not going to compromise on anymore like he did in Zero Sum Game? 
and this whole idea of of um you know what's a non-negotiable for us mm-hmm. uh, that was a really really i think and just a really important message for today in general you know um what are the things that you know? If a civilization it says uh, lacks the courage of its convictions, even in the face of certain annihilation and oblivion, does uh, not deprive it to, uh, deserve to live? It the founder said. So, I just man, that was that was really fantastic message, and I think today's world. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad you see what I was going for there. I'm glad you appreciated that. Yeah, it. it I don't know. It, to me, it it just seemed like something that. We we take for granted, you know, we are willing, I think, maybe to, to compromise on things we shouldn't and, um, you know, stand up for what we believe in and, and what we think is 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 really right in in, in the world. And um, to affect. But I think change, what was interesting, yeah. but to come back to that conversation you cited between Savik and the founder is that neither one of them is necessarily right or wrong. Right. It's just that what they represent are two different philosophies with regard to the interpretation and application of law in the running of a civilization. Whereas you've got a very dogmatic, very by-the-book, letter-of-the-law approach is what guides the mirror dominion. On the part of the Galactic Commonwealth, you have more of a devotion to the spirit of the law, to the spirit of egalitarianism, to the spirit of justice, meritocracy. And it comes down to, uh, you know, here we have Savik saying to the founder, the law needs to be more than an arbitrary and inflexible code. It represents a blueprint for the social contract between a government and its people. And the spirit of that contract is just as important as its letter, to which the founder immediately replies, perhaps, but without respect for the law's letter, its spirit has no agency in the world. And it's really about, you know, this conflicting notion. You have two parties that both agree in theory on what a civilization needs, but they don't agree on how the civilization should apply or or meet that need. And I think that that's always one of the more interesting kinds of conflict rather than having two ideologies that are completely and utterly intractably opposed come head to head, in which case you will very likely root for one or the other quite easily and quite reflexively. But to take two that are both right in their own way and see where they can't come to compromise. And I think that that is where more interesting conflicts lie. And and this was a lesson that was drilled into me like 20 some odd years ago, back when I was in film school. And I had a screenwriting instructor who explained to me, sometimes the most interesting way to approach a conflict in a scene is to have two characters agree on what it is they want to accomplish, but disagree violently about how they want to accomplish it. To have, you know, the the characters, uh, you've got Hitler faced off with his generals, and the generals are all saying, we need to continue to push everything west, 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 and have Hitler say, no, damn it, we're going east and we're going into Russia. They have the same objective to win the war and establish dominance over Europe, but they disagree vehemently over how they're going to get it done. And I, I just, I remembered that lesson all my life through my whole writing career is that sometimes it's not about what it is you want to do. It's about how you want to do it. And that's, that's a, I think a, a great message too, because you know, it, 
it, then you get into that whole question of doing the the right thing for the right reason or are you doing the right thing for the wrong reason are you doing the wrong thing for the right i mean so you get to exactly. all those questions as well and it, it just gets even more complicated and it just reminds us that we do live in a we do live in a complicated world um and it, it isn't so easy always to figure out what is the right thing to do especially like you said neither of those two people in that conversation were necessarily wrong they just have mm-hmm. a, a different way of a different focus and that's another thing you uh quoted obi-wan kenobi in the in the <laughs> book about it, it's about your perspective and how you see things uh, from a certain point of view and uh i it, it, sometimes that's true though because it, when you see something from a different point of view um one thing could seem right and to the other side it could seem wrong and so it's a it's a really good thing to have a reminder of especially in the world we live today so uh, and then two as you always do you you usually mention somebody fun so uh, mentioned in this book bonnie burton uh so very excited (laughs) to see her name in there um so bonnie hi how are you doing uh you got mentioned gotta remember to ping her on twitter i totally gotta write that down otherwise i'm not gonna remember <laughs> oh that's it's always fun to see the people you you kind of throw in there and, and see if somebody will catch so yeah i mean it was fun like i i, I name check a lot of people in every book uh friends people i've just met and become friendly with or folks i know online stuff like that and for some reason i just happen to need a name for you know a, a character on a, a starship and Bonnie Burton just happened to float to the top of my Twitter feed at that moment. And we'd had a couple of good interactions and I said, Hey, I'll name a character after her. And I think I named a character after somebody else too, but I'll have to go through the book to find it. Well, I I really, I'm excited because you, you know, you're going to be following this up with another book. Um, and it, you leave it hanging on, on a great cliffhanger here that oh, yeah. the person in control, or at least you're alluding to the fact that the person in control of Section 31, the one that everybody looks to, name is mm-hmm. Control. So yeah. I can't wait to figure out who that is. And Oh, that seems to be the question on everybody's lips over on a number of discussion boards yeah. at the moment. So, um, you know, I have ideas floating around in my head, uh, but uh, who knows? You know, I think it would be kind of crazy to have it be Sloan for some reason. I just, but because him and Bashir, I will neither obviously, confirm nor deny. I figured you might say that, but, you know, I figured I had to try to. That's, that's what I have to do as a host. So for you... What are the things that you've got coming up that you're working on, other books that you've been working on that, that people kind of need to be aware of and, and, and uh, be out there getting that uh, you have coming up either soon or, or already out? Well, alas, I have nothing out soon. Disavowed is my most recently released book. Before that, I had uh, Star Trek Seekers number one came out this summer. And Star Trek Seekers 2 by Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore came out the month after it. So books one and two, which tell a continuing two-part story, those are out now. Book three is going to be the start of standalone stories in the series. Um, And I've just finished writing Star Trek Seekers 3. I'm in the middle of my polishing draft and read-through right now. I'm hoping to turn that into my editor by the end of this week. I believe that is scheduled to come out sometime in 
early summer. I'm thinking probably June or maybe July would be my guess. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's when Seekers number three will be out. Seekers number four by Dayton and Kevin will be out several months later since we're going to be doing standalone stories. Book three will focus on the little scout ship, the Sagittarius. And book four will continue to tell the stories of the Endeavor, which is a big enterprise type ship. After that, next fall, I have my 24 novel coming out from Tor Forge. That's 24 Rogue. And I don't know why it got pushed to September, but it got pushed to September. So that's that. After that, uh, I'm not sure what the release dates will be. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a year down the road. I can tell you what I'm working on, which will come out at some point uh, after Seekers 3, after Rogue. I have one more book on my Star Trek contract. That's going to be Section 31, Control. I'm turning that book in, or I'm, I should say I'm scheduled to turn that book in uh, September 1st of next year. So that's probably not going to be out till spring of 2016. Oh, goodness. That's a long wait right there. Yeah, well, and then after that, I'm not sure if I'm going to have any more Trek work uh, on my schedule for a little while uh, because I'm very close to signing a three-book deal. Uh, for an original series called The Midnight Front. And that's going to be basically secret history. Uh, The first book is can easily be described as Commando Wizards in World War II. And then book two would be Commando Wizards in the Cold War. And then Mm -hmm. book three is uh, Wizard uh, dealing with the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination in 1963. So, so that's very that's cool. the uh, the project I've been working on for a couple of years in development, and I'm my agents and I are very close to finding that a good home with a good editor. Is that the one that you've been working on for a while that we've kind of uh, you know we'd have yeah. you on and you've you've talked about hoping to find a good home for it? Yeah, that's the one, okay. and uh, we we have an offer, uh, which I think we are very likely to accept probably in the next day or two. And That's then we'll great. Go to contract, and once it's under contract, I'll be able to announce who it's with and who the editor is. And I suspect that will probably not start to come out until late 2016 at the earliest, maybe 2017. Man, congratulations! Yeah, I, congratulations! I mean, for as long as we've been talking to you, you've been kind of talking about this series, and yeah. I know you've been working really hard on it. So uh, that's a yeah, big deal. A- yeah, it's a a labor of love. It's something that I have been working on for about two years. I've done tons of research. Um, I mean, I, I had to build my own detailed timeline of World War II and the Holocaust so that I would know exactly where everything was and when everything happened. And then I could graft my real story into the real events and use real events as the backdrops and settings for the novel. So it's going to be a, a, a pretty big uh ambitious undertaking i could fall violently on my face we'll find <laughs> out soon enough uh but i am hopeful it's uh, my first original novel in several years since the calling in fact and uh it's with a new publisher and as i said it looks like it's going to be a three book deal so i'm i am hopeful that this will get a chance to come to full fruition man that's awesome and then Very lastly exciting. too where can everybody find you online Easiest place to find me is my website, davidmack.pro. That's David, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. And from that homepage, you can find my Facebook author page. You can find my Twitter feed, which is David Allen Mack. David Allen, A-L-A-N, 
M-A-C-K. That's my Twitter handle. Well, David, thank you so much for for coming on the show. We love having you here and and getting to talk through uh, this series. (laughs) A lot of fun to to hear some of the background information about how some of the the other guys kind of screwed you over a little bit and made (laughs) you rethink the plot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, those are my buddies. (laughs) Uh, But uh, great to to have you here again, and we'll definitely be looking forward to uh, talking uh, Seekers 3 as well as Control when they they finally come out. I think that's going to be a ton of fun, brother. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thanks, guys. Well, Matthew, that was great to have David back. You know, he's been on so many times over the past few months. I feel like he's becoming sort of a regular here on the show. Yeah, Chris. You know, it's funny. I was I was thinking back just as we were talking and, and the fact that we've been doing this for a couple of years now. And it's been so much fun to have these authors back time and time again and, and to hear their stories behind the scenes with the books and, and getting to hear things like um, how they mistakenly kind of ruined the plots for their fellow authors on purpose or <laughs> or awesome. by accident. We don't know. Um, I'm not accusing Dayton or, or James of anything. No, that, that was awesome. I, David mentioned his book, The Calling, actually towards the end of the discussion there, and he was just on last month, actually on Halloween, with Mike and Max on Commentary Trek Stars to talk about The Calling. So that's Commentary Trek Stars episode 104, if you want to go hear David talk about his original novel. And that was a fun episode, so yeah. you If you guys haven't listened yeah. to that, you need to go out and get that, because uh, it was a lot of fun hearing David talk about it, that original novel with them. Yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that one. Well, Disavowed isn't the only thing we've been talking about here. And 23rd Century Borg also (laughs) isn't the only thing we've been talking about on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because... The Romulans look like Vulcans. The Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So, it is. so he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow. And then the one on the, on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> got a little arrow. Yep. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of... I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip. But I have a really hard time being... Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated you know people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary: Trek stars. Yeah, yeah, well, the learning we curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say UPN really ooped it up. 
Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic Treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses for the Vivaldi, Strauss, Troiskotsky, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You can find them everywhere you get your podcasts. We're in iTunes, we're on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Windows Phone, BlackBerry, SoundCloud. You can go to the website, you can stream from the web page. You can also download the MP3 file from that page and you can grab the RSS link and put that into any third-party app you want. Many, many ways for you to get the shows. And while you're out there, especially on iTunes and on Stitcher, please take a moment and leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear what you think about the show, and that helps other fans of Star Trek books and comics find literary treks as they're searching for podcasts. And we've had some feedback. We're going to get to that in an upcoming show. We are both coming off big events happening in our life this week, so we, we don't have our feedback section uh, set up for this show. So thank you to everyone who has been sending us feedback. And if you want to share your thoughts on the show with us, there are many ways for you to do that. Of course, you can go to our website at trek.fm contact. Use the form that you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks. And that'll come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also find us on Twitter, where our username is trek.fm. Our main page on Facebook is facebook.com slash trek.fm. But come on over if you're on Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That's our special closed group for listeners of the network. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it'll come right up. Or you can go to our website and click discussion up on the menu bar. We have hundreds of members in there right now. We're having great discussions every single day. And that is a great place for us to talk to you about Star Trek books and comics or anything else you want to talk about from the world of Star Trek. And actually, Matthew, there is something else that you just created that I think listeners of this show are going to want to join. Yeah, Chris, this was uh, one of the listeners' ideas there on the Babel Conference. So, guys, you 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 people are just coming up with fantastic ideas all over the place. And, and somebody asked if we had a group there on Goodreads for the Literary Treks audience. And what a perfect place for us to be. And I, I couldn't believe that I hadn't thought of this before. And so because of that listener's idea, went and created the Literary Treks group there on Goodreads. I actually went through, Chris, every single show and put down every book or comic that I could find on Goodreads and then put a label of what episode it was on. So the bookshelf there has a list of every book and as many comics as I could find as well and what show you can find that on. Plus, it's going to be just a great place for us to kind of maybe announce what's coming up for the listeners so you can just find that link there on the babel conference all you need to do is just like with the babel conference this is a private group i didn't want just anybody to be able to join our group because i wanted it to continue to be the respectful conversation that we've been having as well in the babel conference there on that group 
So just ask to join. I'll let you join. You just have to answer the simple question of, do you listen to literary tricks? And I've gotten some great answers from some people. In fact, um, my feelings weren't hurt when I was told that it wasn't because of my terrible singing, which I'm kidding. I, yeah, I know. I'm sorry, guys. That's, I just can't that's stop. That's pretty funny. But yeah, it's, it's great that we have this group there. I know you and I both check in to Goodreads. Uh, you're more consistent about it than I am, but we both check in there. We know what we're reading and, and rate books up there. So it's great that we have that. And I'm looking through the Babel Conference right now because I remember the thread, but not much else about it. And it was actually Christopher Baca who originally suggested that we have that up there. So, so Christopher, thanks for that suggestion. And I'm glad we've got that group now. Yeah, and I think it'll be a great place. Well, I'll definitely keep it updated, um, and I'll definitely be updating it as, uh, especially we know what's going to be upcoming, so that if you want to be reading along with us, which is so much fun that so many of you try to, you'll be able to do so. Um, And uh, so please feel free to join us there. Definitely. All right, Matthew. So when you're not trying to, you know, figure out where Keiko O'Brien is, so she can kick your ass once again. Where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, of course, you can find me on MattRushing02 there on the Twitter. Uh, make sure to just give me an at reply. Let me know you're following me. I'd love to have a conversation uh, with you about just all the things that we're doing here on, on Trek FM, Where whether it's what I'm doing here with Literary Treks, what we do with the Orb, Chris, where you can also find me, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. Or, of course, now talking on the 602 Club. So uh, literally anything geeky is open at this point. So I hope you also join me there. We've been having some great conversations. Uh, we've talked a lo- about a lot of um, stuff on TV. We're going to be getting into some movies that are coming out, whether it's uh, The Hunger Games coming out now or Interstellar, uh, The Hobbit, uh, things like that. We've got some things coming out with um, like uh, James Bond, all that kind of stuff. So this is just a place for us to kick back have a drink and and talk about the things geeky that we don't normally get to talk about uh, elsewhere on the network. Now, Chris, when you're not uh, figuring out just how you can get that Kira Croft action figure on your desk, where can we find you? Yeah, well, I'm working on that. Um, until then, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones, letter C M Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook and I hang out in the Babel Conference all the time. So come join that group and I'd love to talk to you about Star Trek over there. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find me on lots of different shows. Of course, The Orb with Matthew, as well as The Ready Room and Warp 5 and Continuing Mission, Matter Stream, Hyper Channel, and the official Axonar podcast, which I co-host with Alec Peters, the creator and executive producer of Axonar. So check out all of those shows if you want to find out more of my thoughts from the wide world of Star Trek. It's like the wide world of sports, (laughs) man. The wide world of sports ball. Before we let you go, we'd like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Remember, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. If you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose. You'll get to keep the free book. But if you love podcasts and, of course, you love reading because you're listening to literary treks, you're going to love audiobooks and Audible is the best place to get them. So head on over, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm is the URL. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.